Hey folks, it's hard to believe, but Ephemeral has been on the air now, or whatever the podcast equivalent term is, for almost three years. In that time, our team has continued to grow, what for me has been a dream come true. To that end, this and next episode, you'll be hearing from our producer, Max Williams, who heretofore has been working with Trevor and me behind the scenes. You might recognize him from our 2021 Christmas special, Noel, or as the on-mic producer of Ridiculous History. Fun fact, Max is also my little brother, and frankly, our family's expert on video games. So, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. Gaming, as a pastime, goes back at least to ancient Greece. From Olympic tournaments to bouts of Aristotelian logic, for millennia, humans have been fascinated by the interplay of chance and skill. As games advanced alongside technology, the 20th century brought with it new spaces dedicated to gaming. When I was a youngster, I fell in love with the arcade business when I visited a place called The Casino, in the town of Rye, New York. I come from the Bronx and we bicycled up there. And I just loved the smell of the wood on the floor, the games, the noises they made. Totally unlike what we see today when you go in an arcade with the electronic noises beeping and screaming and all of this interesting electronic aspects that define today's amusement game. Back then it was all mechanical stuff. It ran on electricity, of course, in most cases, but not all. And we had machines like Chicago Coins hockey table, where you batted the ball back and forth underneath the glass, and recording studios, where for a quarter and a dime, you could get in there with your buddies and do anything you wanted, sing a proper song, or maybe use some foul language just to hear it played back, and etc. My name is Eddie Adlam. I'm the publisher of Replay Magazine, which is a monthly trade journal. I've been covering that industry for approximately 54 years right now. And I have continued to work in this field my whole life. Eddie grew up loving arcades, but he never thought he'd devote himself to them professionally. As it turns out, he fell into the games business almost by accident. As the years went by and I graduated college after a period of time with Look Magazine sharpening pencils and then the U.S. Army, I answered an ad in the New York Times for an editorial assistant. It was with Cashbox Magazine, now a defunct trade paper, which largely centered on the recording industry with a small section in its back pages devoted to the jukebox and games business. And they told me they were looking for somebody to do the pages in the back on the uh, games business. And I said I needed a job, but I've been doing it ever since. We reached out to Eddie to talk about video and arcade games, but he reminded us that their history went back further than most people think. An arcade is not unique. The penny arcade, as they were originally called, go back practically since the beginning of the 20th century. A common name would be Playland. A common machine would be a fortune teller or a strength testing thing that you squeeze together. 
but basically only find them in major cities like New York, Chicago, Atlanta, and so on. Up until the 1940s, these arcades might have been purely analog games, like skee-ball or pinball. But with technology advancements in post-World War II America, we saw the rise of electromechanical games. And that brought a whole new level of popularity to gaming. In the 60s, there were no video games. There were electromechanical games, there was pinball, but I really stunk at pinball. But you had Chicago Motor Speedway, which was this game where there was a screen that had sort of a cartoon of cars on it. And then there's a little plastic car and you tried to steer that little plastic car to avoid the cars on the screen. There was a game called Night Bomber that I was very fond of where you'd look for a little head thing and you'd press button and hope that you timed it so that the bomb hit different targets. These games were very rudimentary. They were quarter gobblers, they were fun. My name is Stephen L. Kent. I'm the author of The Ultimate History of Video Games, Volume 1 and 2. Been playing games for a long time, although it doesn't show in my skill level. Although Stephen loved arcade gaming, he says back in the 60s, arcade games were not as easy to find. There were pinball machines and electromechanical machines in bowling alleys. Those were pretty safe places to go. Then there was pinball and electromechanical machines. For instance, if you went to Vegas or Tahoe, you might see some of those in the hotels. Other than that, you saw them in pool halls, and pool halls were actually pretty spooky places to go. They were associated with vagrants and tough guys and some crime. And then there were arcades, which were certainly associated with vagrancy and problems. Coney Island is the classic one that you always hear. They might smell like somebody had urinated just outside. Somebody might have vomited. They were places you didn't necessarily want to send your five-year-old. When you say arcade to young folks, they have a very different view, tinged with all the redemption games, the games where you get the tickets that you then redeem for a game. When you say arcade to old folks, they think of a room or a cavern where the lights are almost all out except for maybe some neon lights on the wall. Music is playing, maybe a jukebox. She's got Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Karn, Eye of the Tiger. Most of the light in the room is the low glow coming from the arcade machines. And you can hear all those iconic little blips and squeaks and things that the different machines made. And people were making little rows of quarters to say that they're reserving the next game. Eddie says there's a reason that kids like Steven found arcades so wonderful, despite their grunginess. It's the poor man's country club. Whereas people with money could go to the literal country club and play golf and blah, blah, blah. People who are working class people or youngsters in high school could get into a different realm in the head with the lights of the machine, the challenge of trying to beat it so you get a repeat play or extra innings is just a nice way to recreate. The word recreation, if it's pronounced properly, is recreate. Although it wasn't yet available in arcades, the first video game was being developed behind the scenes in the 1950s. You would have to say that the inception of video games was with Willie Higginbotham, who was working at the Brookhaven Labs 
it was a nuclear power facility, but they were having an open house. He thought nothing could be more boring than an open house here. So he took an oscilloscope and he built an interactive game into it called Tennis for Two. Really, truly, you have to say that's the inception. Tennis for Two was literally just a dot of light on a screen that would bounce back and forth, prompted by buttons corresponding to each side of the screen. From there, it's always been rumored that Ralph Baer, who worked for Sanders Associates, which was a military contractor, attended that open house. And Ralph, while working at Sanders Associates, came up with an idea for taking a TV and being able to do something more than just watch television shows on it. He developed an interactive game, which started out really dismally. One of the first things they did for it was there was a little box. It would be red, and then you had a pump, and if you really pumped that pump furiously, the box turned blue. Represented a house that was on fire, and you were pumping water into it to put the fire out. They came out with a little dot that would travel, and you had a little toy gun, and you would shoot at it, and that was supposed to be like shooting at clay pigeons. And they came up with a tennis game. And Sanders Associates, of course, itself couldn't publish it. They were a military contractor, but they eventually almost sold it to RCA and eventually sold it to Magnavox and it became Odyssey, the first console. And tomorrow, be sure to see all the holiday specials at your Magnavox dealer. Outstanding values on videomatic color televisions that adjust their own picture to changing room light automatically. An exceptional offer on Odyssey, the exciting electronic game. The Magnavox Odyssey was released in 1971. While very rudimentary, it was also revolutionary. The Odyssey was the first game system that you could hook up to a TV at home. Families who are content to let television do its thing often find themselves at its mercy for a choice of entertainment. While people who want television to do their thing entertain themselves with Odyssey. And it caught the eye of someone else who was also developing games at that time. Nolan Bushnell came across it because he happened to be going to school at the University of Utah, which was one of the great schools and computers at the time. There was MIT, there was Stanford, and there was the University of Utah. Nolan Bushnell had just released a game called Computer Space, developed with a company called Nutting Industries. The game was only moderately successful, but it helped Bushnell make a name for himself. He's a big, tall, well-animated showman. I guess he was in his 20s then. I also got to see this machine, which my immediate reaction was, is nobody's going to buy this. And it didn't do well at all. However, the next year, Nolan had left Nutting and gone into business for himself with a name he picked called Atari. Nolan hired a guy by the name of Al Alcorn to design a game based upon a Magnavox game. That Magnavox game was the tennis game mentioned earlier, as released on the Odyssey in 1972. Atari's first product was Palm, which was, of course, very closely based on Odyssey. It was batting the image of a ball on a TV screen from left to right, left to right, left to right. And Nolan told Al, make me a coin machine version of this. 
Nolan Bushnell went to Alcorn, described the Odyssey game he had seen at that trade show, and said, can you make something like that? And Alcorn went to work and not only made it, but made it a lot better than Odyssey. I first heard about it over the telephone when I was working at Cashbox, that in the West Coast, this machine had been put out into locations, bars, etc., and made nothing but money. They got it all done, and they thought, okay, Atari doesn't manufacture the games. Atari creates the games and sells it to other companies, to pinball companies like Williams, Bally, Midway, Stearns. And so Nolan went off to Chicago to try and sell Pong to one of the established manufacturers. While he's gone, Al Alcorn gets a call from Andy Capps Tavern, which is the place where they had a demo unit out to see how people would react. He gets a call from the manager saying, can you come out here? The machine's broken down. So he comes out in the morning and the manager tells him, you know, it's the strangest thing. Normally we don't get any traffic at all early in the morning, but these days I come out to open the tavern and there's a line and they're not here to drink. They're walking over and playing pong. Al opens the machine to see what's wrong with it and quarters pour out. It was overflowing with quarters. That's what was going wrong. So he called Nolan and told him, and Nolan decided on the spot, Atari isn't going to just design the machines. Atari's going to start making them. Nolan, working with Ted Dabney, figured out how to take this game that would only play on a $30,000 computer and replicate it on a relatively inexpensive technology that people could play in arcades. And the result was a hit. You say, what is a hit? Machines cost money. If you have a machine, let's say, in a bar, where the commission to the bar owner is generally 50% of the take, and you have $200 in the cash can in that machine when you come to make collections, you net $100. You need a lot of plays to just pay for the machines. And if they're paid in a respectable length of time and then continue to make good revenue, you've got a hit. Pong officially launched a video game sensation. Although, as Eddie tells us, that term was still in the making. The phrase video game was coined by myself when in the early days of covering it for Cashbox, I got tired of calling them TV games, television games. We were coming up with all kinds of names to call this class of amusement game. And one day I was sitting at the typewriter writing another story about somebody's machine. And I says, I remember we used to call the movie jukeboxes audio video machines. I says, hey, video game. And I started to do it and the rest of that is history. With the release of Pong, video games quickly became a burgeoning industry. So Pong barely came out, and then all of a sudden everyone starts making Pong-alikes because they can see the writing on the wall. Pong is huge. Pong is also cheaper to make than a pinball machine, much easier to maintain than a pinball machine. Plus, it's more popular. So Williams and Midway and everyone else started coming out with their own versions of Pong, and new companies came out of nowhere to do it as well. 
You're watching the most exciting game you will ever see on your TV set. Telstar by Coleco, with three different games. Telstar Tennis, with digital scoring, variable speeds. But the first real competition came from Key Games. Key Games was a bunch of Atari expatriates who went off and tried to compete. Only it turns out that that was a lie. Atari owned Key Games. Atari always owned Key Games, but they pretended like they were rivals. And that pushed the industry further. If you take a look at what Atari did, they made Pong the first sports game. They made Gotcha the first maze chase game. They had Grand Track and Sprint the first racing games. As the leader in the industry, Atari grew rapidly. In 1976, they released the video arcade game Breakout, which was partially designed by two famous Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Did you try Breakout with a moving wall? Did you try Breakout with an extra ball? And it was sort of a return to Pong. Only now you're not playing horizontally, you're playing vertically. And at the top of the screen, there are bricks. And when your ball hits those bricks, the bricks disappear and you're trying to beat your way through one wall and then there's another wall and then there's another wall. Nolan Bushnell says he designed the game. Other people have said that other people designed it. Who knows for sure? But one thing is certain, there was a young Atari engineer who was involved in all of this. His name was Steve Jobs. When you design a game, every chip in that game is going to cost you over the life of the game tens of thousands of dollars. Let's say you make 10,000 copies of that game. The chip costs five bucks, that's $50,000. Bushnell asked, who can redesign this game to get some of the chips out? Steve Jobs was not an engineer, but he was working on a small homebrew computer package with a good friend named Steve Wozniak. He was quite the engineer. I think he was viewed pretty roundly as the most brilliant engineer in Silicon Valley at the time. Jobs was also not a huge video game player. Wozniak was. So Jobs asked Wozniak to come over, gave him pizza, let him play whatever game he wanted for a while. And then when everyone was gone, said, could you redesign this game for us and get some of the chips out? The story goes that his redesign worked perfectly, but it was so brilliant. And he had taken so many chips out that they couldn't replicate. Famously, Steve Jobs told Steve Wozniak that he was only in a portion of what he really was getting, and he pocketed the rest. According to Bushnell and according to anyone who would know, Steve Jobs then plowed all the rest of the money directly into Apple. But he did mislead Wozniak, and that was pretty much the end of their friendship. Meanwhile, companies in Japan were starting to jump on the video game bandwagon, the first of which was Namco. You have to look at Japan at the time to understand their success. First of all, Japan loves technology. And Japan loves storytelling. Japan loves glitz. And video games were all of those things right from the start. Japan at the time was better at renovating than innovating. So they took this idea of video games that American companies had come up with, and they found ways to change it, to make it more fun. Video games became incredibly popular in Japan, so incredibly popular that there was no keeping up with the demand. 
pretty soon Taito creates a game which Midway imports and adds changes. They enhanced it with a computer. It was the first game to have a computer processor in it. That game was Gunfight. But that wasn't even the most impressive trick that Taito had up their sleeves. In 1978, they would turn the industry upside down by releasing Space Invaders. And whereas Pong made a big hit in the USA and some other places, Space Invaders absolutely hit the entire world. It was a great game, and it still is a fun game to play. They made over 300,000 of these machines, which is unheard of. All of a sudden, you have a battle going. Especially 79, all of a sudden, you have Space Invaders and Atari football exploding on the American public. And Atari football, that was the one with this big old trackball. People would be slapping it till they had blisters on their hands. Their hands are numb. Sometimes your skin got caught in the little circle that held the trackball in place. So people got cuts, but they loved that game. They played that game silly until January when the Super Bowl took place. And then they moved on because football season ended. With Space Invaders, that didn't happen. Space Invader season never ended. Reacting to Space Invaders, Namco developed some big hits of their own, including Pac-Man and Rally X. Also around this time, a small Japanese company named Nintendo started to make games. Nintendo did okay in Japan, it really floundered in the United States. They had a game called Radar Scope that was like the third biggest game in Japan the year it came out. And they thought it would be big here, but it wasn't. And so they created a conversion kit to make it a new game that they thought might be able to save the company. And that new game was Donkey Kong. Eddie calls this period the golden years of video games. And it was almost entirely fueled by Japanese companies. It was known and is known to the general playing public as the Pac-Man days, Defender days, Donkey Kong days, Centipede, Millipede by Atari. The just classics of that period captured the attention and the devotion of kids and even some grown-ups all over the country and all over the world. During the golden years, which really started with Space Invaders, that's a Japanese machine. Pac-Man and Mrs. Pac-Man are Japanese machines. Donkey Kong is the Japanese machine. Now you're looking at some of the classics and they deserve everything they got over here. The so-called golden years of video games changed commerce across the entire entertainment industry in the late 70s and into the early 80s. All of a sudden, it's not just bowling alleys and pool halls that have video games. People are seeing that you can attract people to your business with video games. Business owners and managers are seeing that you can even make money with video games. The games only lasted 20, 30 seconds, most of them. So people were crowding and all of a sudden, grocery stores and drug stores 
malls are just putting up video game areas and arcades are appearing everywhere by 80 arcades are a big thing and the money that went into those machines which by the way were popping up everywhere including in a funeral home in one case was so large that it hurt the recording industry it hurt the movie industry it became the number one form of entertainment but it didn't last the reason it didn't last was again something developed by nolan bushnell it was what we call consumer video you could play pong on your home tv set using this little gizmo I think it was called the Atari 24 or 2800. The Atari 2600. Because if you've got an Atari, you can play Ms. Pac-Man, Centipede, Vanguard, Space Invaders. It's free with the Atari. More hit games than any other system. With alligator clips, you could clip it onto something in the back of your TV set at home and play Pong for free. And that was the beginning of the end of the boom days. Just like how Pong started the video games industry, it also birthed the home video game market. The home version of Pong was released in 1975, and although it would be a few more years before home consoles fully grabbed hold, people liked the convenience. So some companies started to make more consoles. First, there was the Fairchild Channel F, and that was, as I recall, was the first console that used cartridges. I had never heard of, I think his name was Gerald Lawson, the gentleman who invented the cartridges. Until he came around, consoles pretty much had one or two or three hardwired games in it. And Lawson changed all that. All of a sudden, now you could play completely different games. So Atari sees that and picks it up with the 2600. I'd like an Atari 2600 system, please, and everything that goes with it. Everything you sure want, everything. I want everything. Now you get a new low price, up to $30 a rebate office, and a free pack. Is that everything? It's not everything. You can get nearly 300 different cartridges. 300? That's nothing. Something. But it's not everything. Soon there'll be a voice module, a trackball, remote-controlled joysticks, and a computer keyboard. It's amazing. It's amazing, but it's not everything. It's not everything. Soon there'll be educational games, too. Is that everything? That's everything. For now. For now. My favorite home console of the 80s was actually the ColecoVision. Now, bring the arcade experience home because your vision is our vision, ColecoVision. Especially Donkey Kong on the ColecoVision looked exactly like Donkey Kong in the arcade. A lot of the games look better on ColecoVision. A fun fact is that Coleco is short for the Connecticut Leather Company. They used to make these little kits like wallets that Cub Scouts would get. That was what Coleco actually originally did. As the arcade industry fell apart, Coleco made a really interesting investment. There was a little company making dolls outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And they looked at that and they said, okay, video games are falling apart, we'll buy this. It was Cabbage Patch dolls. You're the only one, I love you. Cabbage Patch Kids, you can give them all your love. Cabbage Patch Kids are each sold separately. Each doll comes with a pretend birth certificate and adoption papers from Coleco. They made more off Cabbage Patch dolls in one year than they ever did off video games. Eventually, Warner Brothers caught wind of Atari and all their success. They bought the company from Nolan Bushnell. Nolan still ran things, for a while at least. Nolan Bushnell is a very smart guy. He's got Atari going, 
and he's always going down to the research and development team, and he's looking over people's shoulders. He's got a habit of giving people suggestions. You should really do this and this. You know, that would work better if you do this and this. Then he'll come back two weeks later, and he'll say, you know, you should do it like this and this. And he's making people undo the changes they've just made to accommodate him before. So it became a real problem. Al Alcorn, who was running research and development, at first, what he would do was, the moment Nolan came into research and development, Al would rush over as quickly as he could. Nolan has sort of a shorter attention span, so he'd put his hand on Nolan's shoulder and say, oh, but look at this one. And by the way, let's look at this one over here. Oh, look, we're at the end of the research and development. Nolan, it was so nice of you to stop by. We'll see you next time. And he'd rush him through before he could do too much damage. But then Nolan caught on to that. And so the next thing they came up with was Al would tell people, you don't have to do what Nolan tells you to do until he's told it to you three times. Nolan would come through and he'd make suggestions and people would ignore him. They had a company-wide meeting out at Grass Valley and Nolan came up to speak and he stands up in front of the crowd and he says, I hear that there's a new policy going around that when I tell you to do something, you don't have to do it until I've told you three times. I'm telling you right now, when I tell you to do something, you do it. And somebody from the back of the audience yelled, Hey, could you say that two more times? As it turns out, Warner Brothers wasn't pleased with Bushnell's antics. Warner looked at Nolan and his shenanigans and some of his other executives and fired them off. Retired them would be a much more accurate way to say it. But put them out to pasture with nice severance packages and replaced Nolan with a guy named Ray Kassar. Ray had no idea what he was getting into. He came from Burlington, the coat manufacturer, the textile manufacturer. His first big move was to hold a company meeting in which he tried to assure his game designers that he knew how to work well with designers because he'd been working with them for years. He was talking about the towel manufacturers as if creating towels was similar to creating video games. It did not go over well. Ray Kassar was not well-liked from within the games industry. A lot of people left because they didn't like being under Ray Kassar. And a lot of people left because they knew there was money at the other end of the rainbow that wasn't at Atari. They were making $20,000, $30,000 a year. They were making Atari a lot of money, but they weren't making a lot of money. Ray Kassar told all of his designers, the guys who designed my towels don't tell everyone what towel they did. I don't want you telling people what games you worked on. But there was a silver lining to his lack of popularity. We got to give credit where credit is due. The first open world game is also the game with the first Easter egg. Of the original 10 designers, one of the last two to remain was a guy named Warren Robinette. Warren was working on a game called Adventure. If you've watched Ready Player One, if that's the game at the end. Warren Robinette was proud of Adventure. He wanted people to know who was behind it. That's why he created the first digital Easter egg. You could only carry one object at a time. If you carried the ladder, you didn't have a sword to defend yourself. But if you got that ladder and you leaned it against the wall at the very end of the game, at the far end, and you climbed up to the top of it, even though there was no visible door, you would pass through an invisible hole in the wall 
And then if you ran your cursor over that wall, you'd find that there was one hot pixel. And then if you pulled that pixel and you carried it back to the front of the game, you opened a hidden room. And in that hidden room, in rainbow letters, by Warren Robinette. He didn't think anybody would ever find that. I remember talking to him about it. He told me about going out to dinner. He'd quit Atari by this time, or he was just about to leave Atari. He's out to dinner with his friend. And I said, what did your friend say when you told him that? And he said, he didn't. And I said, why? And he said, well, if I couldn't keep the secret myself, how could I ask my friends to keep it? So here's this amazing innovation he's done. There's no way in the world anybody's ever going to find it, right? Except there's this kid. He's in Salt Lake City. He's got nothing to do. I think it's the dead of winter in Salt Lake. It gets snowy. He, maybe he's a nerd like me trying to play Pong with both hands to see how far he could get. For some reason, he climbs up the ladder. For some reason, he walks through the hole. For some reason, he finds the pixel and carries it all the way back. And he calls Atari and says, there's a glitch in your game. They had no idea. They thought he was crazy. Unfortunately for Atari, stories like this were few and far between. And it left them unprepared for what came next in the video games industry. Ray Kassar's run as head of Atari did not go well. It didn't take long for Ray to alienate and in some ways ruin Atari. I was lucky. I think post-Atari, I may have been the only interview he ever granted. He was touchy. Being the first to point out it was his idea to bring Space Invaders to the Atari 2600. Out here we entertain ourselves at home. So we got an Atari video game. There's so many different games to play. We especially like Space Invaders, zapping those little devils from outer space. It's fun, but personally, I think the whole idea of creatures from outer space is a little far-fetched. And that was a big thing, but they made some huge mistakes. There were two almost concurrent disasters. The first one was E.T. The movie E.T. had come around, was a huge success. Warner wanted to lure Steven Spielberg away from Universal, where he was making E.T. and movies like E.T. and Jaws. And so part of what they did was they said, look, Steve, here's $25 million licensing fee for E.T. $25 million in 1982 was unheard of. So they promised him all that money, and they promised him the game would be ready for Christmas. And he was going to hold them to that. They didn't realize it takes a year to make a game. And this is July. They're leaving three or four months to make a game. And they brought in this one guy, Howard Scott Warshaw, to make the game. Warshaw was a good choice. He was a bright guy. He was a good game designer. He had made the Raiders of the Lost Ark game. They assigned him to make the E.T. game. They gave him no time to do it. They gave him really, truly no budget because the $25 million had been spent on it. Games at that time were made by one person. There's going to be music in the game. You came up with the music. There was art. You came up with the art. You did the programming. They gave Howard an unreasonable task. And he went after it and came out with a virtually unplayable game. I mean, everyone in the world hates that game. 
I'm not sure you can fully blame Howard for it. According to Eddie, this sort of tie-in movie and game deal was a pretty common thing in the 1980s. We call that a licensed game. It's a good marketing tool. It draws you. But they're only good for the first quarter, we used to say. And you say, what does that mean? The rule is if the license is basically a marketing draw, it's an eye attractor, an interest attractor, but basically the game itself, regardless of what it's called, is going to have to have it in the legs. Let's say the Rolling Stones pinball. Oh, I wonder what that's like. You go over and you play it a couple of times. If the game isn't any fun, I don't care if it's George Washington or your teacher at school face on the game. You're not going to play it. It's only good for the first few plays until the game itself is the attraction rather than the license. The other game was Pac-Man. Bear in mind that at the time, Pac-Man was the most popular game in the world. Pac-Man had been on the cover of Time Magazine and Mad Magazine. Pac-Man was the best-selling arcade game of all time. Drop Atari Pac-Man into your Atari video computer system and you're playing the hottest games in Space Invaders, Atari Pac-Man. They released an Atari 2600 version of it and it stunk. It was terrible. It didn't play or look even vaguely like the game in the arcade. People didn't like it. And concurrently, America had lost its focus on video games. Arcades started closing. First, it was the big ones. You had these huge arcades. And arcades are like blue whales, the biggest animal that's ever lived, but it only eats krill. And it's the same thing. You had these huge arcades that were living on quarters. And as long as you have quarters lined up on the machines, you can live on those quarters. But when a few less people show up, and a few less people are playing. And the people who did show up again and again were the people who were better at games. They were the people who could make a quarter last a minute. And thus, arcades started to fall out of popularity. Meanwhile, Nintendo was hard at work at developing their own home console, the NES, released in 1983. Over in Japan, Nintendo is just preparing to release their Famicom, which is short for Family Computer, which would be repackaged as the Nintendo Entertainment Center in the United States. It played games that looked closer to the arcade games. And interestingly, it had basically the same processing chip in it as the Atari 2600. I mean, if you played Mario on it, it looked just like the arcade game. And I remember looking at that and thinking, this is high art. There were other companies that tried to compete, but the only one that even made a dent on the market was Sega with the Sega Master System. The Sega Master System actually had slightly better graphics, a little more memory and everything, but there was this thing called Pac-In game. If you bought consoles back then, if you bought a Sega Master System, it came with Super Hang-On, which was a pretty good game. It was a motorcycle riding game. But the basic Pac-In on the NES with Super Mario Brothers. That was all the technology Nintendo needed to beat anybody. Steven says Nintendo was successful because they were smart about design. They created iconic characters 
that would stick in the minds of players everywhere. Something's coming up, the plumbing for Luigi's in a bite. Giant turtles out to get him, creepy crabs are right behind. Spiderflies, cheaper giants, they're all coming out the pipes. Mario, where are you? In a lot of ways, the growth of video games is like the growth of Hollywood. In some ways, the death of arcades is like the death of movie theaters. There was a time when Charlie Chaplin was very big. And then people kind of looked at Charlie Chaplin and, you know, he was cool. He was old school. But we like Audie Murphy. Audie, welcome to the Army Hour. Thanks, Dems. It's nice to see you again. Or we like John Wayne. I got no interest in you today. Stand clear and you won't get hurt. Or eventually we like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hasta la vista, baby. Originally, Pac-Man and the aliens from Space Invader were cool things. But they didn't have very long legs. Donkey Kong somehow became far more iconic, even though Pac-Man outsold Donkey Kong. But Mario had an advantage in that Mario got the NES. There was never a Capcom console, right? The people at Nintendo were very intelligent in that they realized as Mario goes, so goes our console. They started looking for other icons they could create. What will the future bring from Nintendo? More hits like Super Mario Brothers. Arcade hits like Kung Fu. Nintendo has the most video game hits. Hogan's Alley, Duck Hunt, and more like Baseball and Excite Bike. And you can play them only on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you're playing with power. For a little while, it looked like it might be Excitebike. Certainly Duck Hunt is still remembered. But they came out with this game that was so dicey called The Legend of Zelda. Did you see the latest Nintendo newsletter? Whoa, nice graphics. I'd like to get my hands on that game. You mean you haven't played it yet? We can play it on my Nintendo Entertainment System. It's the Legend of Zelda, and it's really rad. Those creatures from Ganon are pretty bad. Octoroks, Tech Tech's levers, too. But with your help, our hero pulls through. Yeah, go, Link. Yeah, get some. Awesome. Intense. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Your parents help you hook it up. Did people really want to invest this much time in a game? It was a dicey thing for Nintendo to do, but they really threw their weight behind it. And it caught on. It rivaled Mario in popularity. Nintendo released their first handheld console in 1989 and called it the Game Boy. This effort was led by a man named Gunpei Yokoi. That's a very sacred name to me because Gunpei was one of my first friends in the industry. He affected Nintendo culture almost as much as Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Zelda and Mario and Donkey Kong. Miyamoto created the personality of the games. Nintendo to this day makes family-friendly games because Miyamoto likes to smile when he creates games. Gunpei Okoi, he was nice, he was quiet, and he was miserly. His whole view was that you could do things using old technology very cheaply, even though he wasn't the creator of the NES. The people who did create it were trained by him. And the NES, if you take a look, is basically the same chip as the Atari 2600. 
he created the arcade hardware that Miyamoto used for Donkey Kong. And in the case of Game Boy, he takes just this very, very old chip and monochrome technology, and he puts it all together. What he sees is everyone knows this chip. This is an ancient chip anyone in the world can program on. It doesn't need to be color. And he makes an assumption that nobody else would make. He assumes that when people play portable games, they want portability. They're not looking to play the exact same game on their Game Boy that they would play on their console. So a lot of the games are built around the idea that they're small. You can pick them up, you can play them very quickly, you can put them down. You can play them while you're on the bus. You don't have to concentrate the same way you would concentrate for other games. The technology is cheap, hence Game Boy sells for 89 bucks when it came out. They said it wasn't humanly possible. All the power and excitement of Nintendo right in the palm of your hand. Introducing Game Boy. It's portable, it's in stereo, and its games are interchangeable. Game Boy comes complete with batteries and the outrageous new game, Tetris. And for head-to-head -head competition, use video link and blow your opponent away. Game Boy, only from Nintendo. Now you're playing with power, portable power. Atari coming out with the Lynx, which was color and had a better processor and eight batteries alive. Introducing Lynx from Atari, the color video game you can get away with. Well, sometimes. Never knew what hit it. The first 300,000 units of a Game Boy were sold out within two weeks of release. By 1995, the Game Boy had sold 16 million units. The Atari Lynx sold fewer than 7 million units by that same time. Gunpei was a bona fide hero. His next big project would be the Virtual Boy, which everyone looks at as a disaster, but it was brilliant again. He simply took monochrome technology and he put it on a Viewmaster. It was a failure, so he was in the doghouse for about a year, about the same time that the N64 came out. They had a Space World, that's the Nintendo proprietary game show. And the last time I saw my friend Gunpei was at that Space World in Makuhari. It's in this big warehouse, and if you went off to the far right corner, that's where they had the N64, so everyone went there. And then there were SNES, the Super NES was still pretty popular at that point, and Game Boy games out, and then in a small corner near the exit was what was left of Virtual Boy. And Gunpei was there holding down the fort, trying to show anybody who would come by what Virtual Boy would do. And when I walked by, he said, please, please come, <laughs> you know, let's talk. He didn't speak English, and my Japanese is completely non-existent. But he showed me his games, and then we sat down and talked for about an hour. And then I left, and that was the last time I saw him. Gunpei then left Nintendo and went on to develop the Bandai Wonder Swan, a short-lived handheld gaming device. But it was the last project he would work on. On October 4th, 1997, Gunpei tragically died in a car accident. The world gave him a nice tribute when he died. I was very surprised and very pleased. I think he got more attention when he passed maybe than Hiroshi Emochi the guy who took Nintendo into video games. 
there was a lot of attention about the father of Game Boy dying. Game Boy was amazing because to that point in time, the biggest electronics family of product was Walkman family of products. Game Boy was a close second. Then the PlayStation brand name came. And that was that. Sony Entertainment entered the video game market in 1994 with the release of PlayStation. We'll talk about Sony, Nintendo, and the Microsoft Xbox in part two. All that on the next episode of Ephemeral. This episode of Ephemeral was co-written by Max Williams and Trevor Young with editing and sound design by Max Williams. Stephen Kent is the author of The Ultimate History of Video Games, Volumes 1 and 2. And Eddie Adlum is the publisher for Replay Magazine. Some of the great music this episode, like the piece you're hearing now, comes courtesy of the artist Mon Plaisir. If you've listened to Ephemeral for a while, you've heard a lot of their work. And we're happy to announce we'll have an upcoming episode interviewing the artist. For now, hear more at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Tune in next episode for Video Games Part 2. In the meantime, find us on social media. We're at Ephemeral Show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.